The presenting sponsor for EgoCheck with the DM is RPG Research. RPG Research is a 501c3 research and human services nonprofit charitable 100% volunteer-run organization. They provide music and role-playing game research. They provide community programs, and they're all using collaborative music and games to help people improve their functioning and quality of life. Uh, they're working with individuals with ADHD, anxiety, other at-risk populations, brain injuries, and depression, impulse control, mental health issues, social phobia, social skills development, and substance use dependency. RPG Research is an open international community sharing, studying, and providing accessible and inclusive collaborative music and games to help improve people's lives. To find out more about this organization, you can find them online at rpgresearch.com. Once again, that's rpgresearch.com. Welcome to another episode of Ego Check with the IDM. I am your host, Michael Mallon, and this week I am really pleased to be joined by Ed Grabinowski. And did I pronounce that correctly? Pretty close. Grabinowski, Grabinowski. It's it's there's some discrepancy there. Oh, I was <laughs> trying to trying to nail that. So we're off to a bad start, but we're we're gonna pick things up. Yes, so Ed and I have known each other online in the Twitter social media world since way back in 2011. He had actually hosted one of the first articles that I wrote about painting miniatures at his site, Robot Viking. He is, for those of you who don't know, he's an author, a freelance writer. He's worked as a contributing writer for a variety of sites, some of which you are likely familiar with, io9, How Stuff Works, also Barnes & Noble. Um, he's had fiction that's appeared in a variety of anthology, anthologies, publications, and is also a musician. So I want to talk about all of these things. So quite the renaissance, man. Ed, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thanks for having me. It's awesome to be here. So maybe just starting out for folks who haven't interacted with you, haven't met you before, tell us a little bit about yourself. What's kind of your professional life? What's your gaming life? And everything like how do you blend all those things together sure um so i've been a, a professional freelance writer for geez since probably about 2002 um, i worked at some newspapers before that so um but really just doing a lot of work for io9 and how stuff works and then other websites magazines things like that here and there so yeah i haven't had an office job in a long time and then these days, I primarily write for actually um, the Stuff You Should Know podcast, which a lot of people end up knowing me from because they refer to me on the podcast as the Grabster. Uh, <laughs> that would have been easier than trying to pronounce the last name. You know? Yeah, you know one of the, one of the things, one of the truisms of life is that you don't get to choose your nickname. So, uh, <laughs> so I, I have become the Grabster for better or worse. Um, yeah, so so it, at the moment, I write articles for the podcast that don't actually end up appearing on the website at all, which is kind of interesting. So it's almost like, I guess you'd almost classify that as like lead researcher or something. Okay. Um, so that's, that's the bulk of my time. I do some other odds and ends. Um, 
none of it's super glamorous. But uh, always, always working on the novel on the side, you know. <laughs> working on that novel. <laughs> working on that novel. Yes. Uh, an hour a night. But um, as far as gaming, in the last year, like we moved to a new house, and that just, you know, that just devours your life. So I haven't done any RPG playing in a really long time. But I have a, a group of friends, my brother and I, and a couple of friends of ours. We get together, I'd say every two weeks or so, every week when we can, but then you miss some here and there, to play Magic the Gathering. Okay. Uh, so that's, that's, sort of, that's my most, I, I guess, consistent gaming outlet. Although, now that we're in the new house, we have like a really nice room for for gaming. We're like gearing up to dive back into some D&D and some other RPGs. Sweet. And you had mentioned that you don't have a traditional office job. So what what is that lifestyle like for you? How do you organize your time? What what works? What doesn't work? Um, I could I could be a lot better at it. Uh, <laughs> everybody assumes that, or or a thing I get a lot is like, "Wow, you must be so disciplined." And it's like, um, I know I, I I feel like a train wreck at all times. Um, I mean, you'd think, you know, what did I say? I've been doing this since 2002. You'd think I'd have some kind of system down. But no, I'm, you know, I'm pulling all nighters because I was an idiot and didn't get enough work done during the day. I, you know, scrambling to meet deadlines. It's, it's terrible. I don't know. <laughs> I don't have like a really good, uh, professional writer answer for you <laughs> other than. It sounds like organized chaos. Yeah, it's, it really is. It's, uh, Hopefully nobody ever listens to this when they're planning on hiring me for something right. in their future. Wow, it sounds like he has everything just lined up and ready to go. <laughs> bring him on board. So that's yeah, that's the sad truth of uh, freelance life. Well, you mentioned the house, and you are in the Boston area. I'm not Boston, Buffalo. Yeah, Buffalo. Okay. And you're dealing. You've been dealing with quite some weather recently. We have. You know, a lot of years where winter is pretty negligible or just whatever, you know, you got in trouble once in a while. But like this year, it's just been a monster. We had a literal blizzard about a week and a half ago, and then it warmed up so fast that everything flooded. And we had an ice storm today. Uh, we also had a couple days of like where the high temperature was about two degrees. So they had to close the schools so, you know, like kids don't die <laughs> of sheer cold. That's important. Yes. Yes. So, so we've had, uh, yeah, we've had a really interesting winter so far. And we were supposed to actually record this last week. That's right. Yeah. I was busy digging out. In the middle of the polar vortex where it was close to negative 50 below with the wind chill here. And you had, what, like a foot and a half of snow to dig out from? It was a lot. Uh, you know, typically, this, the snow patterns in Buffalo, the really heavy snow comes off the lake. And I don't know, if you ever look at a map, it, it, like the way Lake Erie is positioned, is usually south of Buffalo that, that is hit the hardest. And I live a little bit north of Buffalo. And so it was unusual for us to actually get the amount that we got. But we got it. So in addition to gaming, uh, D&D, one of the things we had originally bonded over on social media uh, was hockey. And you had mentioned to me that, you know, you've been doing this writing for close to 20 years now. And one of the things that you used to write about were the Sabres 
for the mm-hmm. NHL, the Buffalo Sabres, for those of you who aren't familiar with hockey too much, shame on you. Um, so what was it like to be in that world? How did you get your start there? Uh, well, that was really cool. It, that was about uh, 1999-2000. Um, my first job, actually, out of college was, well, my first real job, because, you know, you, you kind of flounder a bit right after college. What was your degree in? <laughs> um, mass communications. Okay, perfect. So, um, but, you know, I worked at the Hard Rock Cafe right out of college, because that was... <laughs> That was my career. As one does. Uh, yeah, right. Uh, no, but I got a a job at a, a local weekly newspaper, and uh, it was a really good learning experience. I mean, I have some really great stories I could tell about my two years or so at that newspaper, but um, yeah, you, you get to do a, a little or a whole lot of everything. I actually ran the newspaper at one point because my okay. boss, my, my boss demanding it. Managing editor had a uh, emergency appendectomy one day. And, oh no! Uh, yeah, I, I ended up <laughs> having to be the managing editor with about maybe four or five months' experience on the job. Uh, so that was fun. Um, anyways, for for whatever reason, they had the, the, whoever had preceded me at the job had covered the Sabers. And usually, you think of like sports coverage as like a daily thing, right? Box scores and like game reports and stuff. Mm-hmm. So it didn't. It didn't necessarily make sense for me to cover that, but they sort of considered it a job perk, and like the Sabers PR office just let us, you know, have our press pass. So I wrote a weekly column about whatever was going on with the Sabers, and I got to go to all the home games for I think about one season. I, I covered it. Um, yeah, it was amazing. It was amazing just to see how it all works. Um, you know get to do the the post game interviews in the locker room and at the at the um coaches press conference just talk to a lot of players i'd go to practices every now and then i know i mentioned when we talked about this earlier um martin biran was a goalie for the sabers for a bunch of years i don't know i don't know where he ended up i think he's doing play-by-play somewhere right now i think so um, i i think i hear that name as I'm watching my flyers, I think he's one of the announcers for one of the other teams. Yeah, yeah, he's um, he was a really great guy, and I, for whatever reason, he got called up from the Sabers farm team, and I went to that practice and interviewed him like his first day with the Sabers. Uh, I remember that actually he didn't have his mask painted yet, and he was uh, he's just a really talkative, enthusiastic guy. So <laughs> he was always fun to talk to. Later. Um, I remember overhearing some of the other press people and Sabres joking about somebody called to interview him. You know, they were, we were in the press elevator and somebody was like, oh, yeah, so-and-so called to, to talk to Marty. And the other guy goes, oh, yeah, when was this? He's like, oh, it was, it was like one this afternoon. And they're like, oh, is he still talking to him? <laughs> <laughs> Just one of those guys. So, yeah. Yeah, he's actually – I'm looking it up. He's, he's, an, he's still in Buffalo. He's the studio analyst for MSG out there. Oh, no kidding. So he's still in town. You should look him up and you know, yeah, right? re- rekindle that. So from the newspaper, where did your career path take you? Like how did you end up – how did you go from there to being a freelancer who's writing articles and working with different people? So I went uh, – I ended up at Kansas State University um, and I did about most of a semester towards a master's degree in journalism. Mm-hmm. 
because actually because my fiance at the time had moved, had gone to Kansas State University. Um, and while I was there, somebody in the journalism department was like, Hey, just a heads up, everybody, somebody, you know, sent us an email. They're looking for somebody to do these freelance articles. And, uh, so I followed up on it. It turned out to be a lawyer and they wanted somebody to write some sort of legal based, uh, how-to stuff, you know, for, okay. for their for their website. Uh, and I started doing it, and the money was pretty good, and I actually I didn't end up finishing that semester of grad school because I was like, hey, you know, I'm making money here doing this versus taking out loans to survive in grad school. So, um, yeah, so I dropped out of grad school after a semester, and I picked up a couple more freelance jobs, including uh, my first How Stuff Works article, which was – how hockey works. <laughs> Very topical. Yes. <laughs> so, and that just, you know, basically was, that was it. That was the path. I just sort of kept on that path. So was that early 2000s then when that happened? That would have been, yeah, that would have been about 2002, okay. give or take, give or take a couple of years or a couple months, I should say. Well, and, and curious as, you know, working for print media and then going into Really, the start of, I mean, that time frame, that's still very young in the life of online news and different websites. What has that development been like over time for someone who's just trying to, I don't know, maybe I don't want to put words in your mouth, but trying to ride that wave of staying, staying employed, getting jobs and just finding out where to, where you can write, where outlets? Yeah. Um, I've been fortunate that a lot of the places I've, I have worked with, it's been a steady, you know, week in and week out kind of thing. So it's like I'm freelance, but I'm not – some freelancers are like hustling all the time. They're constantly pitching new articles to new places. They're writing for, you know, five different websites and four different magazines at all times. And I usually had one or two. Um, so I don't know if my experience is really, like, really typical. I think the, I saw sort of the emergence of the blog post model, and then that seems to have faded a little bit, where I think feature writing is valued a little bit more now. Um, but I don't know. I'm, I'm not an any kind of media analyst. I just sort of do whatever I do in my little corner of the internet. So, uh, and so the how stuff works relationship that's been going on for over, well over 15 years then. Yeah. It's, it's been a long time. Um, nice. boy, I, I, I have to think that there's a chance that I might be, that I don't know if there's anybody at the company right now who was there when I started. Okay. Um, but it's changed ownership a bunch of times and I, they've actually like laid me off several times and then rehired me. So <laughs> that's, and that's really how the media, you know, sort of landscape is for, for a writer. Um, I guess it's weird to say if you're freelance to say you were laid off, but I mean, you know, you have a regular thing going and then mm -hmm. it stops for whatever reason. So it's, you're effectively being laid off. Um, so yeah, I'd have to I'd have to dig around. It's there's a really good chance that <laughs> that I am like the the oldest surviving employee of how stuff works at the moment. <laughs> there's some like there's some chart organizational chart somewhere where you're the top. Right. I, I longevity. 
wow, maybe we just we secretly discovered that I actually own the company by right. some kind of weird hereditary uh, kind of like you ran the newspaper for a while. It's like <laughs> I run how stuff works. <laughs> uh, that would be nice. And so, what what do you find most engaging about doing the type of work that you do right now? Uh, just the variety. It's that's always been, especially with how stuff works, but. Um, with other places too, because I can kind of pick and choose, you know, what I, what strikes my interest and what I want to pitch. Um, it's just never the same thing. I mean, I've, I have researched and written on six different topics in the last month that were like wildly different from each other. Like elephants was one topic currently writing about dyslexia. Um, I did an article about, uh, what was that? The, the fumes from artist paints and air purifiers you can use to get rid of those fumes. <laughs> so you don't like lose your mind from right. fumes and whatnot. <laughs> exactly. So um, it's all over the place. And for a lot, when I was at io9, I wrote about tabletop gaming for a bunch of years, and that was definitely um, you know that, that was just sort of following my interests there because when I they actually hired me to be a science writer. Uh, and um, they used to pay you by page views, and I would sort of sneak in a gaming article once in a while because my editor, uh, you know, thought, thought it was pretty cool. And the gaming articles got so many more page views than the science articles, and so I just I wasn't getting paid very much for writing these science articles, which were way more difficult to write. There's a lot more, you know, going on there. So I was like. Uh, I'm not an idiot. I'm going to write about the the more fun thing for me that makes more money. So, so I ended up focusing primarily on the games for quite a few years there. And those articles are are still on io9. And, they are. And I think you you tweeted this out recently, or I came across it just doing some research before I was talking to you. Uh, but one of the titles of your articles that I really enjoyed is this is from November of 2015. Do we really need a fifth book of Pathfinder Monsters? You're goddamn right we do. <laughs> <laughs> and it's definitely a personal favorite headline. And, and it just goes on from there. But you get a flavor of what you're in for <laughs> just from the title. I think it's truth in advertising. <laughs> yes, definitely. I think the most popular article I ever wrote, is just in terms of like going viral and getting a ludicrous number of page views, was... Uh, Oh boy, it was probably around 2015 as well, and it just one day it popped into my head that there was that one really weird choose your own adventure book where you get picked up by a UFO, that and it's that you can't win, right? Exactly, like this weird unwinnable yeah. choose your own. And so I just wrote about like remember that weird, and and like just was super popular. It got it got like 300, 400,000 pages or something like that. That's Literally. amazing. Yeah. What is it like? to be part of something like that that goes viral for those of us who haven't experienced such a thing i mean it's different than right like now if you if you were to like have a tweet go that viral it's more immediate because like your mentions are exploding even if you like you know filter it people are replying to you you maybe get you get a bunch of new followers or whatever so there's like as, as fleeting and pointless as it is, there's some kind of like immediate impact to you. But when it was like an article I had written, you know, 
the page counter going up wasn't something that I really like experienced on a personal level other than like I would check it a couple of days later and be like, oh, holy crap, I should get a pretty good paycheck for this one. Right. <laughs> um, every once in a while, something would go wide enough that like somebody I knew in the distant past would be like, oh, hey, man, I saw your name on this article. I figured I'd look you up. Uh, but Are you famous now? Yeah, yeah, but that only happened a handful of times. You know, just like old high school friends or whatever, just happened to see your name or like, oh, I knew that guy. But yeah, it's it's not like it's not a big deal, really. I'm sure that if if for somebody who wrote something more personal, I know, like I've seen some articles recently about writers who wrote about their own personal experiences, and then that went viral. So people end up reacting to them as a person. Right. As opposed to just reading the story and they end up dealing with a lot more judgment and, you know, the the discourse about them, which I think would be pretty bizarre to experience. I never experienced anything like that. Yeah, and I've been writing about D and D and gaming and certainly some, some more personal articles for the past eight years. And I don't think anything's quite taken off to having hundreds of thousands of views, certainly. <laughs> and it is interesting. Like part of me wants that to happen. And also part of me is fearful of that happening. Cause w- these days with that increased attention, like, you know, don't know what you're in store for. Um, it's just an interesting time to be trying to produce content online right now. Yeah. I, th- I think I used to be, somewhat wary of it. And I I realized at some point that like, it it doesn't matter how viral you go in 12 hours, the world will have moved on to something else. Right. So (laughs) it's, it's always going to be transient and it's, I mean, it's, it's man, it's like a cliche to be, to say like, well, William Gibson predicted this, but man, we are really living in William Gibson's world right now. Well, and it, have you noticed, because, I mean, you've been writing as a freelancer online for you know, the better part of 15 years. Can you tangibly feel that the speed of everything has picked up? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, like, social media accelerated it, and then I think the popularity of... Uh, the current type of social media we have, it makes it even faster. Like things move through Twitter, like tsunami waves passing by at like 600 miles an hour. And, you know, there's another wave coming behind it. And so you don't even have time to deal with the effects of the first wave because there's another one coming. Like it's the world is just being crisscrossed by these, you know, sort of impact waves. And uh, I guess that's an interesting metaphor if you think about like wave resonance and stuff like that. But anyways. Uh. <laughs> yeah, it, it does strike me. And I think this is in all realms, entertainment, certainly uh, politics, no doubt. But I even think, you know, if you're on science Twitter or education Twitter or mental health Twitter, like somebody will tweet out, a scientific article, like a publication or some bit of news happens, but sometimes two and a half hours later, it's just gone. Well, it, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that because like just this morning I saw a really cool article and I, I tweeted something about it. And then somebody came back and was like, Oh, 
you know, this, I remember talking about this when I was an undergrad, this, this doesn't seem to be a new breakthrough or anything. And I was like, Oh, and I, and I feel kind of dumb, you know, obviously like being a sort of researcher and writer that I didn't actually look at the date. It was the article was from 2014 that I had thought was so fascinating this morning. <laughs> so I was like, Oh wow. I guess it is old news. And just, you know, I, I don't know, I guess in the past I would have seen that in a magazine and waited to see another article in a magazine about it two years later when like more recent follow-up research had happened. And now it's just like it happened and then I got to move on to something else because there's 8 million other things happening. Uh, so I don't even, I haven't even like followed up on this. I one idea that I wrote or like tweeted about this morning that I thought was really interesting, but who knows? <laughs> yeah. And just the, the logistics of viewing information how easy that is, how easy it is to share it, um, and how you multiply that by 10 or by 100 or by 100,000. And that's how information travels so quickly. And it might not be accurate. It might not be new, <laughs> like you said. Yeah. Um, that happened to me the other day. I was looking at, it was this publication about some research about dementia, Alzheimer's disease, and, and gum disease, and how there's a link there, and how they think they might be able to find a vaccine based on this research. And I'm like, wow, that's fascinating. What a breakthrough. And then I spent about 45 seconds trying to delve into it. And I was like, wait, I don't know how legit this is. <laughs> right. Yes, I saw the same study. And uh, it does look interesting. And then it's, it's funny how much so you don't end up getting the rebuttal in like a counter study. You get it in somebody on Twitter going, uh, everybody's talking about this article, but I think it's really dubious because, because their claims are, you know, based on, uh, research only done on mice for in this particular instance. This is what I saw about it. And then, so you, so you think to yourself, like, you don't, you don't have the bandwidth to research this yourself. So your brain goes from like, this is awesome. There's going to be a vaccine for Alzheimer's. And then like you see someone with some veneer of authority in this area say, no, that's a bad study because they only use mice. And so your brain goes, I don't know. Okay. I guess it was a bad study. And, and there might be somebody else out there going, no idiot. Like all studies are based on mice. That's the best evidence. And if it means we can move towards human trials, it's actually a huge important study that will move us towards a vaccine for Alzheimer's. Right, but if you don't see that third tweet, which I didn't, maybe it doesn't exist. Maybe it was a bad study. I don't know, <laughs> but you don't. You just you just can't deal with trying to find all that information yourself. Meanwhile, you're being bombarded with takes. Yeah, I was just gonna say you're gonna you move on to the next thing. Yeah, whether it's sports or oh, this new movie trailer or something else is happening and. And it just, it never stops. It never stops. So, I mean, my question is, what what's it like for you to now try to tap into whatever zeitgeist to get eyeballs, to get views, to write something that, that resonates? How, did, how does that work? So with the writing, well, at least for like the sort of, you know, what I call day job writing for the podcast and, and the other freelance stuff, it's nice because I don't really have to worry about that. Like people assign me what to write and I research it and write about it and you know, whatever happens happens. Um, 
when it comes to my own creative stuff, you know, my short stories, uh, you know, we tried to fund a short film uh, using a screenplay I wrote based on one of my short stories last year or a year before last year, I should say. Um, and with the band, um, yeah, it's hard because it feels like you're just constantly hustling to try and get people to pay attention to you. And not, it's not like it isn't so much like that you begrudge the effort because it's like, yeah, like you got to do work to promote yourself or whatever. It's just like the feeling of having to always be on in some way or always trying to think of ways to get people to pay attention to what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, in a, you know, in a marketplace that is just completely saturated with, you know, I'll just give you an example. Like, Please. so, so the band, the album came out, and so this, you're talking about Space Lord, yes, your band, right? My band, Space Lord, um, Space Lord Band Bandcamp.com. Everybody, go there and yes, buy digital copies of our records. We're going to get to that, but yeah, absolutely, I, check I out the music. You. Yeah, because <laughs> um, well, always hustling. Um, yeah, so so we're in a sort of a, a niche that we didn't really even know existed when we started out called doom uh, or sometimes referred to as stoner rock. And there's this website called the doom charts that is like catered to this one specific sub, sub, sub genre of music. So you would think like within this really narrow, narrowly defined band of, of musical style, how much is there, right? Like maybe there's five cool bands that you discover and then a couple old ones, but the Doom Charts highlight 25 bands every month. Jeez. And sometimes a band like will hold over. So like we made the Doom Charts twice with our last two releases, and we've stayed on for two months both times. But there's probably 100 bands that don't even make the Doom Charts wow. <laughs> every, every month. There's, you know, so like there's just so much stuff out there, and it's hard to, it's hard to stand out. And, and you you question yourself or you second guess yourself. You're like, you know, do we need some kind of wacky gimmick, right? Or should we just do our thing and hope we do it well enough that the right person notices? You know, it's 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 really hard. It's really really hard to figure out. I don't know the right path as an artist. It's easy to say just just make your art, man, and don't worry about the rest. But it's not like that. <laughs> well, and I, I think it de- it depends if. You know, I've, I have a you know a full time job, so all the creative stuff I do is it's a hobby, it's an outlet. At the same time, I want it to be seen and you know try to try to tap into that. But I think if it is something that is more you're trying to make a career or a side gig or help you, you want to take it further, I, whatever you're doing, whether it's streaming uh, or writing or making music. There's so much out there to fight for attention. Um, it just seems daunting, and it's really easy now, for better and for worse, to compare yourself to other people. Like you talked about this chart, you can see like, oh wow, there's a hundred other bands that we never even heard of that are doing maybe something similar. What's that mean for what we're doing? And right, it can. I think it can make people question themselves and just sort of obliterate motivation. Um, for some people, I think it can motivate them and spur them on more, but w- what's that process been like for you? 
for I, I can definitely like for music it's one thing and for writing it's another thing because like sure okay I'm I'm not so like my goals as a fiction writer I mean I'm still basically trying to break through I've had some short stories published but I'm I haven't really like achieved anything like what I would like to achieve with writing fiction mm-hmm. um, and with the band man like when we started it we just we had no idea to how to even define success as a band right now because the music industry has changed so, so much. So we literally, I mean, we just had no clue. We were like, do we, do we shop demos to labels like you used to in the old days? Uh, and then we kind of figured out Bandcamp and that you just use Bandcamp to self publish your stuff because that is like the great democratizer. You don't need a record label. You literally don't need anything except some music that sounds pretty cool and a cool album cover to get to help catch some attention. And um, so we really have achieved like a lot of I think what I wanted to ever achieve with Space Lord in that like we got on a record label, um, we got a bunch of attention from like people who were into our music, like. There's some guy in Italy who owns a Space Lord t-shirt, which I could never have imagined <laughs> that being true, but I, I mailed it to him. Going worldwide. Yeah, I mean, um, and and our record came out on vinyl, which is like... It's like so, a real thing. Yeah, it's it's really cool. And um, there's some other stuff I, I, I'd like to accomplish. So yeah, so when you talk about like comparing yourselves... Yeah, I mean, I definitely see bands come through Buffalo and like they fill up the the venue that we don't fill up, you know. So it's like, okay, how do we how do we get to that level? Um, just not because like we want to make money or because we want a horde of adoring fans or whatever, but like it's just better to play music for a larger group of people. It's, it's just as simple as that. Like, I just want to play for more people because there's energy there and it's really cool and fun. Um, and I always wanted to know, you know I've watched different documentaries um, about different bands. And one of my favorite moments is from the Pearl Jam 20. I mean, that's my favorite band, but they were talking about Mother Love Bone and the, the lead singer who, you know, unfortunately died. <clears throat> they just talked about him playing these dingy bars with maybe eight people as if it was Madison Square Garden. Right. Just would treat it as if he would be like screaming to the people in the back and like no one was in the back. <laughs> and so I'm wondering for your band and I don't know how many people are at your shows and it's like what is it like to when people maybe aren't that familiar with, with you to just try to connect and get people's attention in that venue, which is way different than, you know, writing or something where it's it's less simultaneous. Right. Um, it's it's a challenge for me in a lot of ways because I don't so you're talking about Andrew Wood from yes. Mother Love Bone and he was you know, he was just a natural performer and he was really charismatic and just like lived that. And that's not me. Um, and you it's think not, it's not the grabster. It's not the grabster. And you think about that stuff. You think like because when you go on stage, like it's not just you because whatever you is like sitting there on the couch, you know, watching a hockey game or playing Xbox or something is is a completely different person than the one that stands up on a stage and sings. And so you have to adopt some kind of persona 
you know, not that you become fake. You st- you can't. You still have to be yourself. But like, Almost what like as- a wrestling character? Almost. I, it's not. I mean, some people certainly do do it that way. I don't think it's necessarily that outrageous or or exaggerated. It's just like you you take some element of yourself and amplify it. Well, this is just me. Like, you know, mm-hmm. another performer could could have a completely different approach to this, and maybe the wrestling character idea, you know, f- fits into how they handle it really well. That's actually a really good analogy. Boy, I just kind of wandered right away from the point there. What were we talking about? Uh- oh, yeah, no, I interjected, <laughs> which was my bad. But just what what is it like for you to oh, oh. connect with people while you're up on stage? Yeah, so yeah, we we've certainly played dingy bars with you know nobody was there but the other bands um i'm not gonna lie there are nights when it's hard there are nights when it's just like well whatever let's just treat it like a practice um not that you don't put on a show but you're just like yeah it's hard it's hard to explain without sounding like i'm a, a crappy performer but i will say like you know when there's just literally no one there and you know you're not getting paid and there's somebody at the bar, but they're watching CNN. <laughs> uh, like, yeah, come on, right? You're you're not you're not the energy isn't there, and but we've had shows where there was you know not a ton of people, but tens of people, and and just that much energy makes an enormous difference. And then yeah, I wanted to check in about that. The flip side, when things are when you feel like there's a connection and people are into the music and you get that feedback, just what is that like? It's, you know, I I don't love performing. That was part of what I, I think I was kind of like getting at initially. I, I like writing songs and I like singing and I like working in the studio. Um, but going to a bar and performing is not like my favorite part of the whole deal, but it's cool. It's just not my favorite and it's not like supernatural for me. Um, so sometimes at the start of the show, like I don't have that energy cause I'm like kind of anxious or whatever. And that jolt of like, you finish a song and you can hear that, like there's a couple dozen people there that are into it and they're paying attention and they're cheering. Even if you know, like half of them are your friends that came to support you. Um, I've been that person for my friend's band. Yeah. It means a lot. And it, it's like five cups of coffee, you know, you're, you're just like, bam. Yeah. Now, now you're into it. Now you, now you connect to it. But it's part of that like persona thing I was talking about too, where, where, if I'm personally, you know, Ed, who just writes articles, isn't super excited about going to play a show, but there's a character inside me that is. Mm. And I've been trying. It's an evolution. I, I, you know, I'm always trying to get better at performances and stuff. And I think the last couple we've done, um, I've kind of shifted gears a little bit, and it's been a lot better and, and tapped into that a little bit more. Um but this is, it's hard to explain if you haven't seen us play, I guess. <laughs> Sadly, no. Right, and since, since we have yet to play outside of Buffalo, nobody really has. But you said, you told me uh, earlier offline that uh, later in the year you're going to New York? Yeah, it's just really preliminary plans at the moment, so I can't, I don't have any dates or venues or anything like that, but... Um, there's there's another band that's really cool that's in that area, so I think we're gonna try and do like a weekend this summer and do a couple shows all around the New York City 
vicinity. I don't know. We might just do two shows in New York City and one in like Albany or something like that. Okay. So, um, yeah, fingers crossed that that, that works cool. out. Yeah. So I, I run another podcast with my friend Chris, who you've interacted with him on Twitter uh, at Geek Zynga about Magic the Gathering because you guys uh, share that. Um, <clears throat> hobby uh so i've talked about different magic cards and things over the years so i was telling him i was like you gotta listen to this band i'm, I'm interviewing this guy in a, in a couple of weeks i was like let me know if you have any questions so he, I, question submitted from my other podcast host so i want to throw this one at you all right um and it kind of ties into just I, I like what you say on the band camp site is uh we unleash a cosmic blast of radioactive rock fashioned in the manner of our ancestors uh you mentioned zeppelin sabbath Alice in Chains and Soundgarden. And his question relates to, like, he can definitely hear the love for the bands that you cite on the Bandcamp page. And when you're with, when you're writing music or, you know, with the other members of your band, do the songs come out that way purposely? Like, do you find a tone that sort of evokes that influence or is it more? Like purposeful, or it just sort of happens. On the first album, so the, the if, if you go to the Bandcamp page, there's an EP, and then there's our first full length, self-titled. Those are actually all sort of written and recorded at the same time, yeah. and kind of arbitrarily split into the EP. And there was definitely a period of what kind of band are we? Like, d does this song that's a little less heavy fit in with all the other stuff? Are we, or should we be like, just only put the dark heavy stuff on there? Um, and that plays into that, you know, we had a lot of discussions about our, of the different bands that influence us and sort of which ones we should lean into more heavily. Uh, when it, And so when it comes to a specific song, there are definitely songs where I was like, like, uh, so I'll hear the music that the guitarist uh, Rich has put together, and I write the, the the vocal melody and the lyrics and stuff. Um, and there are definitely times where I'm like, oh, I'm getting you know like a really Alice in Chains vibe from this, so I'm gonna I'm gonna lean into that. Um, there's a song on the the new album in Decipher called All in Red, and like. Only I sing. There's no other singer in the band, so we don't really have like vocal harmony, vocal harmonies and stuff. Okay. And uh, but I don't know. At the start of the song, I was like, I think it would be really cool to do this sort of Alice in Chains homage. So so we layered my vocals, you know, in, in multiple takes to get that sort of Lane Staley, Jerry Cantrell, you know, harmony vibe. So in that case, like it was super intentional. There's also a song on the album that I wrote uh, the week after Chris Cornell passed away. Mm. That's like a really, you know, conscious. He, he was definitely like in my thoughts as I wrote it. So there's elements of that that are like, yeah, I, you know, I want this to to evoke him as much as possible. There's a whole bunch of songs where like I there I had influences in mind, and then people come later and they're like. Oh yeah, I totally hear like this band in it, and I'm like, oh, that's not what I was thinking at all. But cool. 
just kind of happened that way. Right. I mean, you know, there's a song called New Machine that's this kind of weird, like, disco feel to it. And, and so I really consciously had in mind some of the mid-70s Rolling Stone stuff, like Miss You and um, Emotional Rescue and some, some stuff like that. And then um, some Black Crows things. I'm a really big fan of the Black Crows. Yeah, great. And... Um, Really, I mean, like, really leaned hard into those influences, and like, nobody has mentioned those. Everybody listens to that song and goes, "Oh, I really get this like Led Zeppelin vibe," and I'm like, oh, "That's cool. All right, <laughs> whatever you say, man." <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not like you know Led Zeppelin influence is ever absent. I mean, I think anybody who plays heavy guitar music is, you know, there's going to be a Led Zeppelin influence there. It's just inevitable. And so the other thing that Chris had, had kind of asked about. And maybe I'll preface it with a question of who does the artwork for the albums? We uh, we hire outside artists uh, for the first full length. We commissioned art and like did we gave art direction to the artist. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know the artist. I can't find the artist's name. If you give me one second here. Sure. Andy Belanger, a Montreal uh, comic book artist who's an amazing artist. And so he created this sort of iconic... Um, we were looking for a sort of Jack Kirby-esque space god kind of character, and he just like totally hit it out of the ballpark. And the character he created really kind of became like the Space Lord logo, almost. Sure. Um, Does the character have a name? He's just the Space Lord. Okay. So the idea is that he can sort of appear in a variety of incarnations. Um, I shouldn't even say he, because he's just this sort of... Uh, you know, entity of cosmic might. <laughs> yes. Um, so then going back to the EP, we actually found some like really old art from the golden age of the old like sci-fi pulp mm-hmm. magazines that has fallen out of copyright. Okay. Because uh, we have a limited budget. So, so we, we reuse a little bit of old art for that one. And then for the most recent album in Decipher, there's actually a pretty interesting story about the art on that one um there's this book called the hamlin book of mysteries by a british the british publisher hamlin they put these things out in the 80s they had a whole series there's a hamlin book of ghosts and hamlin book of monsters but i got the hamlin book of mysteries when i was eight years old as a birthday gift from my parents and it's just it's just a book about the Bermuda Triangle and the Loch Ness Monster and like Sasquatch and all, like okay. all that weird quasi paranormal stuff. Right. And man, I mean, it was just so formative for me, you know, becoming a, a weirdo who likes monsters and creepy stuff. And I lost the original book at some point. I actually have managed to collect all of the entire Hamlin series. And and this, that particular one had this just completely bonkers cover with this sea monster with like bu- bulging red eyes and the UFOs behind him and for some reason there's like a skull in the foreground. Right. I mean it's just completely insane. 
So we were like going back and forth about the art for this album, and, and I'd contacted a few artists, and nobody really got back to me. So one day I'm like, I wonder, I wonder who the artist is for this. And I looked him up, and he had a web page. So I filled out the little form, you know, web form on his website, which is like the black the black hole of the internet. Nobody ever yes. responds to those, right? Yeah. And I'm just like, here's the deal: we're a band, we're independent. You know, we didn't have a label at the time, so we were paid for this stuff out of pocket. I don't know if this is even possible. And literally the next day, the artist and his uh, agent responded to me and was like. I understand they quoted me a really reasonable price to license the art. They were like amazing to work with. So the artist's name is Oliver Frey, F R E uh F R E Y. Okay. And uh the only the only hiccup was they didn't have the original painting. Mm-hmm. So the art that actually appears on the album cover is a scan of my personal copy of the book. That's awesome. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, and it's just, I don't know, it's, it's a dream come true for me to have, you know, just such a cool thing for my childhood be the album cover. And I think it, like, it, it looks crazy. Like, it's just completely insane, this yeah. crazy and sea monster. <laughs> so I'll post this uh, on Twitter, uh, if you follow me on there. And if you, I, I always post a link to the, the podcast on my blog. I'll, I'll put the art there and certainly link to it. But, yeah, so it's this, <laughs> this UFO in the background. There's... Uh, what looks like a sea monster. Um, it kind of reminds me of the the space slug from Empire. <laughs> it's just, it almost looks like this hand puppet, this like reptilian hand puppet with a bulging red eye and teeth coming out. And then in the foreground is something out of the Goonies. It's like, like one eye Willie skeleton face with. <laughs> What kind of looks like a pirate hat on, and there's a rib cage around it with the fingers. It's it's amazing. So if you go to Bandcamp and purchase the vinyl, of which we actually have very few copies left, um, our label printed full gatefold album covers. So we actually scanned the back cover of the book because it's it was a full wraparound painting. Oh, fantastic! So the cover actually wraps around, um, and it's like. I'm not even. I'm not looking at it. So I'm a base on memory. There's like a bloody fan of playing cards, and also nice. like Flight 19 <laughs> flying into the Bermuda Triangle or something. And I think also the uh, some footprints leading to the the um, abominable snowman lumbering off into the distance. So it's it's really pretty spectacular. It's fantastic. And so, so that was a lead into the question of. You know, kind of a lot of the bands you talked about before, um, Zeppelin, Sabbath, and also bands like Rush. There were always these um, sort of fantasy stories at times, almost a sinister aspect to the lyrics and imagery, and the covers and the art that that, that you've used for the albums kind of evoke that. And again, is that deliberate or just it sort of suits your sensibilities? Yeah. It's it's definitely I mean it's both like it's mm-hmm. it's stuff we think is cool and it fits the the themes in the music it, I think at one point early on like I said when we were sort of searching for the band's identity um, and the very first song we wrote was this 
weird like conspiracy theory based thing, thing called Hollow Moon, um, which is this you know like so so if you imagine the most tinfoil hat guy who's just like ranting and raving about every possible conspiracy, he's like basically the protagonist of that song. It's so weird and fun, and and I just realized, like, yeah, that's that's the kind of stuff I want to write about. So, almost every song has some kind of, I'll just say, genre. You know, sci-fi, horror, mystery, supernatural, fantasy stuff. There, there's something in almost every song. Like, there's very few that are not influenced by that in some way. But I also like to use that stuff in. I mean, it sounds really pretentious for me to say this, but I really like to use Perfect. yeah, I really, I really like to use fantasy themes as a metaphor for other issues. <laughs> so yes, I'm not gonna like go into any. I'm not gonna like talk about my. Let me tell you about my lyrics, man. But um, yeah, I kind of like to sort of layer stories and 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 weave those things together. But sometimes. The song Black Sword is just like straight up Michael Moorcock homage. Like it's just it's just about Elric. So there's there's no hidden meaning there. It's just like cool imagery from old pulp fantasy novels. Well, uh, and a song on the the latest album called Indecipher is a Super Starship Adventure. Yes. So. Just tell me about that song, because that just, as I was listening to the album, I think just the title and, like, it's just stuck out to me. So what was the origin of that tune? So Rich brought the guitar music to the band pretty much complete. Um, there's there's always some rearranging, like, should we play this part four times or eight times or whatever to make it fit, you know, with whatever, whatever I write lyrically to go over it but it was it was 90 percent complete and um i don't know it just had this upbeat feel to it and i don't know like if i've been watching something on tv that week that had me in that frame of mind but when you start working on a song you have to give it a working title of some kind so you're not just like 
uh, that one that starts with the guitar, like, you gets really confusing. So, sure. so I just assign things working titles, and sometimes they're super generic, like song 58 or whatever. And sometimes it's just whatever pops into my head, and so I call this one Super Starship Adventure because it just like felt like that to me. So that was the working title, and it was really just a it was kind of a joke title. And as we worked on it, I was like, "No, this is an awesome title, and it's exactly what the song is about." (laughs) This is perfect. Yes. So, and if you uh, listen to the song, it makes perfect sense. It's it. literally it, it's it's the most probably the most like narratively cohesive song <laughs> I've ever written. It is literally about a super starship adventure. Yeah, I, and I remember thinking like as we were working on it, I'm like, this is the theme song to an anime that has never existed. <laughs> There's still time, people out there who right? are making anime. <laughs> so, so with your with your writing with Space Lord, what is sort of the, the the two month, the two year, the five year plan. Like what? What's next? Yeah, I have no idea. <laughs> There's no plan. I'm just, I'm just like surfing the wave wherever it goes. Again, he's available for hire. <laughs> got everything figured out. Yep. He can solve problems. <laughs> uh, yeah. No. I, I mean, you know, I want to finish the novel. I'd like to. I'd like to get traditionally published and get an agent and find a publisher for that. Um, but you know that's on me. You have to finish a novel before you can find an agent. Um, for the band, it's it's really hard to say. We're going to do the mini tour. We're just starting, just really very very early, writing some new songs for a third album of some kind. Um, our deal with the label is just kind of a one shot thing, so we're not sure if we're gonna. We'd like to stay with them, but who knows how that is going to go down. Um, record deals are also like probably different than what people imagine them to be these days, but we probably don't really have time to get into that. Um, if you ever want some insights into the indie rock uh, <laughs> industry, if, if, as it exists at this very strange moment in history. The vagaries of such industry? Yeah. Um, not not that it's bad. Like There's good in, there's good and bad, but it's, it's very different. You know, no, you don't get like an advance, and you don't really get a lot of money when you're a small indie because basically the labels don't have much to offer you, and you could do a lot of what they used to do on your own through Bandcamp. So, okay. so, so deals are structured really unusually. I guess since we're, I'm sort of like up to my chin here. I'll let's just dive all the way in. Yeah. Uh, um, so, so like for us, you know, we really wanted the the albums to come out on vinyl. And the people who are into our type of music love collecting vinyl. But it is prohibitively expensive to press vinyl. Um, I think the minimum run you could do is 100 and it's if you do like the most bare-bones printing, it's going to cost you over $1,000 up front, you know? So you gotta you have to front that and hope you are going to make it back selling them for, you know, 20 bucks a pop. And we just decided that was not something we were going to be able to do. We were going to need a label to help us do that. So the label, they got in touch with us. Some other labels offered us some different deals, um, but we really like this label. Basically what they do is they license the album to sell within their territory okay. uh, for a certain period of time exclusively. And so they'll print 
let's say they'll press 300 copies of the album. And so instead of money, they give you a percentage of the print run. Hmm. So we got a big crate full of records, basically, is our payment for the record deal, which we can then sell. And that ends up, you know, being our profit for forever. Okay. Um, which is, yeah, it's not glamorous. It's not, uh, we didn't, you know, nobody sent us a big check. But it's, you know, it suits our purposes in our particular genre really well. And the, and the label, the label's Cosmic Artifacts, K-O-Z-M-I-K, Artifacts with a Z. Okay. They're based in Germany, and they have a ton of cool bands. They've been awesome to work with. Great. Um, so... And you guys, if, if people are curious to check out your music, uh, go online through uh, spacelordband.bandcamp.com, correct? Yep. Yeah. You can buy digital copies. Uh, you can buy what, whatever is left of the vinyl, and we have uh, some cool T-shirts as well. And you guys are also on Spotify, if people have that service. And how does that work? Uh, that was actually another aspect of being on a label that, that was important to us because the first two, the EP and the first album, are not on any of the stream, uh, streaming services or Amazon. You can also you can also buy the music on Amazon and I think iTunes and all, basically like all the major ones. Um, but basically, to get onto those, you you don't have to have a label. There's a process you can go through as an indie to get it done, but it's easier if you're on a label. So. Basically, you need your labels, whatever, like publisher ID and the catalog number of your release, and then you just kind of fill out some stuff and upload your music, and that's how you get it on Spotify. Do you like get stats? Are you curious about that? Do, do you get a check every once in a while, like not totals or anything? But is it something you monitor, or is it just is another thing that is kind of an iron in the fire? Yeah, I think it's just. It's just a, it's like being played on the radio. Basically, it's just like exposure, right? <clears throat> Which I know that's that's the dirty word, right? For exposure, sure. Right, but um, you're just on there in hopes that you know people would hear you because they have their little algorithms and stuff. So they kind of you know maybe your your music will get thrown into somebody's playlist or something, and so you'll get some more ears on it, and they'll get interested and come over to the Bandcamp page and and buy the by the record um i mean the royalty rates on spotify are so so low it's just like fractions of a fraction isn't it of a penny i mean it's yeah. so like for for a band like us i guess maybe in like ten thousand years we might <laughs> earn enough to actually be worth cutting a check for but i mean yeah we're not we're not immensely popular so Probably since the album was released, our, our total Spotify earnings would be like seven cents or something, and three of those would probably be me listening. <laughs> it is. I mean, for me, like just being able to like, just even preparing for the interview, and it's, it's, I hadn't heard the music before. Just like commuting to work uh, back and forth, and my son, who's two, we were listening to it, and he seemed to dig it. So uh, I liked it as well. But it was just it's so convenient. The flip side is that, I mean, if people really like your music, if they have a convenient way to get to it where they're not paying for it, that's a problem. Um, so there's like this double-edged sword there that I, I don't know if anyone's quite solved. Yeah, it's it's a bummer. Um, so, it's something I, I don't know. I mean, 
the Spotify royalty rates are like Grand Theory. Yeah. The record labels are making a lot of money. Independents like us are not. Um, I don't know. I think we realized pretty early on that like our particular market of fans, they were they were going to be into a more analog experience. So like it is definitely it's great. It's super convenient to listen to Spotify, um, but it's it works out well for us that we have fans who are just really into vinyl and that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, I think a few weeks ago you had tweeted out like your merch booth, and there was there's a T-shirt that I definitely want to get. <laughs> Excellent. The, the Space Lord, uh, orange and black again, the Flyers colors for. Oh, that's and, right. Yes, we're almost out of those. That's, uh, check in with you offline. Um, a final thing, because I know we're winding down and I want to respect your time, but something I selfishly wanted to, to recap. One of uh, where we kind of blended the chocolate and peanut butter of your interest, uh, writing and music. We had dueling Guns N' Roses articles about three years ago. Yes. Um, was it that long? Oh, my God. Yeah, I was curious because I was wondering how long ago. And I posted – I think we both posted it on August 31st, 2016. Holy moly. So we had gotten to a conversation on Twitter. Uh, and probably I spurred it because I, I probably have a greater affinity for Guns N' Roses than, than you may than you may have, um, at least when it comes to the usual, Use Your Illusion albums. That I, my whole premise that I've been thinking about since high school is if you just trim those albums down to 12 songs, would it be a worthy successor to Appetite for Destruction? Right. And so that's the premise of the article. And you had kind of challenged me and said, like, no, (laughs) there's not enough music there to, (laughs) to warrant a 12 track album that's really that good. I was like, all right, I'm going to write about this. And you're like, fine, I'll write about it too. And <laughs> I devoted a lot of time <laughs> to writing this article. Um, really, really broke it down. I Speaking of Spotify, I still listen to that playlist on Spotify of my version of Use Your Illusion. Nice. Uh, uh, but it was just a fun article to write. It was very engaging. I enjoyed it. I still have gone back and read it at times. Yeah, that, that it, was really fun, yeah. It makes me laugh. <laughs> it also has a story about my brother in there, who right. long-time listeners of podcasts. You know, my brother died uh, about a year and a half ago. So it's a story about him that had nothing to do with his death. It was just because it was before it happened. Um, but just that topic and writing that, if you even recall, like, what are your, uh, you know, nutshell thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I definitely recall. I was actually thinking about that today. Um, what occurred to me was that because, like, I think some of the differences in how we approached it have to do with you. Like, I definitely like Guns N' Roses, but you're a bigger fan than I am. So you probably listen to those albums a lot more than I ever had. Um, so I listened to them a bunch while I was writing it, but, like, to be honest, there were probably songs on those albums that I had heard maybe once before that week. <laughs> <laughs> like, wait, this is Guns N' Roses? Right. I never knew this song existed. <laughs> and and you had... Is that pro- a saxophone? <laughs> what is happening? You probably had the experience of, like, where those albums had kind of seeped into your veins, right? So you, <laughs> you knew those songs 
and had maybe some more like associations with them that colored how you thought about them? Is, is yeah, that... I think that there's definitely an emotional connection, right. uh, for lack of a better term. And I just I didn't have that for a lot of those songs, so um, so I, it would be interesting to go and look at those articles back to back again with that in mind. Like what what is different about how we emotionally connect to these songs? Not just like necessarily what kind of music we like. Um, Because if I listen to Use Your Illusions, both of them, you know, a lot over the course of five years, let's let's come back in five years and see what I have to say about it. Like, there's no songs that make the. There's no element. (laughs) No, there's some good ones. There are some really good ones, and I actually think Civil War might be their best song ever. Yeah, that made the cut for me, and I also spent a lot of time on not only the songs that make it, but what order they go in. Um, So that was fun to put together. And and maybe ending on this note of, you know, whether it's writing or music, but but doing something that you have that emotional connection to, it it just adds another layer of enjoyment and and meaning to it. Certainly for me, for, for the work I do, well, like the hobby, like writing or doing these podcasts, and it's just something that I find enjoyable. And so when I have an, an article, like the Guns N' Roses article, I've written about some other stuff that's hit some personal notes um, over the years. But I tend to, when I find a topic like that, I'm just sort of all in. Even It doesn't matter how ridiculous it is. It's just, okay, this is what I'm doing for the next week, or however long it takes me to generate it. Right. Um, I'm guessing from hearing you talk that the music and in some ways the writing, it's kind of the same way for you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, yeah, you, you just have to embrace, you know, whatever feeling it is and, and kind of reformulate that into what, what you're creating at the moment. Um, which sometimes it's a super starship adventure. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, so Thank I, goodness. Right. <laughs> and like, and, and I think sometimes like nostalgia is, is almost like a pejorative for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think if you just recognize the role that nostalgia plays and how you feel about things, uh, it can, it's like a flavor, you know, like if you listen to Pearl Jam and you just love it so much more because on top of it being really awesome music, you just feel this incredible rush of nostalgia for when you were 15. That's awesome. You know, that like, why deny that feeling and why, why act like, you know, it's somehow a false feeling that you like something because it's tied to nostalgia. I mean, you just have to recognize that your point of view is colored by nostalgia so that you're not necessarily the most objective observer about that particular thing, but just like embrace those feelings and love what you love. Yeah. And and for these articles, there was no one clamoring for, you know what I want to read? I want to read a 3000 word article about use your illusion. (laughs) We made it happen. (laughs) We made it happen. They're out there. It's forever. Well, forever, as long as the internet is, but it, they're, They're out there, and I'm glad I did it, but I wasn't doing it for, like, the intrinsic extrinsic rewards. Right. 
Um, those, were, those were thoughts that needed to be yes. arranged and put into the world, and it was it was fun doing it. I, although I will say, I look at the stats on my website every once in a while, and that is consistently in like the top ten. <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, fond memories for that era of that band, yeah. um, and then it sort of went downhill after that. But that's that's one of the things I wrote about because when I saw them. Uh, it was December 17th, 1991. It was my first concert. So that's why I have, I think, a lot of memories of nice. this time period. Um, but leading up to that concert, so August 91, Pearl Jam 10 comes out. September 91, Nirvana's Nevermind. And October 91, uh, Bad Motorfinger by Soundgarden. So, like, I went to this concert having no idea that the musical world was going to change. <laughs> Um, so that's sort of how the article starts off. So I, I kind of had this vision of this is what this article could be and launched into it and it was fun. And I appreciate your willingness to placate me, uh, several years ago by being like, sure, I'll write about this. <laughs> you know, what we should do next. We should do like our ultimate nineties grunge compilation. Oh, interesting. The most essential and meaningful. 90s songs. I you you firm that up and let me know your thoughts. All right, we will, we will definitely uh, write dueling articles once again. Yeah, that sounds awesome. All right, cool. Um, Ed, well, thank you very much for your time. How can people get in touch with you? We mentioned the the Bandcamp site, but just kind of run through all the ways people can support your work, and if they have questions, reach out. Yeah, you can come find me at Twitter. I am Robot Viking. Uh, or you can go to my website, robotviking.com, and if you want to send me an email, there's a web form there. I promise it's not a black hole. I will actually respond. So that's uh, that's the easiest within, thing. Within a day saying, yes, I can help you. Yes, <laughs> with a reasonable quote for licensing art. Right. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, uh, good luck with all your endeavors, and I'm sure we'll, we'll stay in touch uh, through all the social media options. Absolutely. And if you're ever touring in the Twin Cities, I will definitely come see the band. Who knows what the future holds? Yes. All right, sir. Have a good night. All right, you too. Thanks a lot. Mm-hmm.